is it really Ohio's versus the entire world? I don't think so, but we're going to get into that this week on Iceman and Coach. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Iceman and Coach. As always, this is your host, the Iceman, Matt Freights. I want to remind you at the top of the show, if you have a take that you would like to give, call or text the show. Area code 703-718-6314 is the number to do that. This week, the coach is out once again to take care of some family obligations. So we are once again pulling from the Matty Ice Media Network and also pulling from political football. We have Dave one of the co-hosts of Political Football. Dave, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking out the time. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's so wonderful to be here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the show. You guys do a great job, so I'm honored to be to be a part of it, be able to share some of my hopefully good, but probably uh, a little hot takes here. I mean, we're all about spiciness on here because, as you saw from some of the banter that we had offline, the people that watch this show or listen to the show are willing to give their hot takes as somebody would rather have Jimmy Garoppolo than Russell Wilson. So these are the kinds of things that we are used to here on this show. So I'm just happy that you're available to do this. And last week, Cleve was here and gave his brand of analysis. But before we get into anything on this show, you guys have your own show. So I want to give you the space to let our viewers and listeners know everything about what you guys got going on at Political Football. Yeah, absolutely. So Political Football, um, you know, we do mostly discuss the NFL, but we have been talking about Colorado uh, here a little bit recently with what's going on with uh coach prime there and you know we we do tend to focus on football but we're not afraid to get into politics especially when it does intersect with sports right nothing in that realm is really off limits or something like that so when it does come up you know we'll we'll discuss it but yeah you know each week we review what happened in the nfl it's hosted by a jets fan and two lions fans so usually it's the audience gets to make fun of us because our teams are usually not that great so it's a fun it's a fun time Oh, yeah, it is a fun time. And I feel like the analysis you guys bring is much different than what we do here. Like we talk about how we're for the every fan. So we're we're for those people that are kind of on the fringes of sports, like they're casual sports fans. I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a casual sports fan because I feel mm-hmm. like I know a little bit more than the people at the water cooler. Like, I don't know if this happens for you, a little bit of a peek inside the curtain of content creation. But like sometimes people find out that I have a podcast and they think that I know everything about sports. This has happened to you. Uh it does. Luckily, luckily for me, with the way my brain works, I tend to know more off the top of my head about the NFL and college football to where I can just kind of go with it. But if they start talking to me about the NBA, Major League Baseball, even European soccer, I have to be like real careful because I'm not I'm not quite as knowledgeable in those, even though I do really enjoy them. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy them, too. But I cop to the fact like I say this a lot whenever people have that gotcha moment, especially on YouTube. They're like, you're going to be wrong. And I'm like, happy to be wrong. Like, I don't know everything. So totally fine with me. But if you want to check them out, you can find them wherever you find your podcast. You guys are a live stream on YouTube, I believe every single Tuesday. So you want to check them out. It depends on whether you like audio, video or both. It's always good to subscribe to both. And we'll get to that a little bit later again, as we'll give you some time to or some runway to actually plug the show again. But you mentioned Coach Prime and you mentioned Colorado. And I hate to go to this topic every single week, but it's difficult not to because it's it's, compelling. It's compelling. It's interesting. 
And honestly, like if you're not talking about it, then what the hell are you talking about? I mean, there's a lot of things in sports that you could talk about. But over the weekend, the hype train that was Colorado went to Eugene, Oregon. And what you and I both thought was going to happen happened where Oregon, a vastly superior football team in just about every way, took care of business and blew out the Colorado Buffaloes. And that really wasn't the interesting part. The interesting part was everything that happened before and everything that has happened since in the narratives that are surrounding this game. I don't know. That's how I feel. But before we get into some of that, I just want to hear your thoughts first on Colorado, what they've done up until this point, and on what they showed with, I believe, Dan Lanning, coach of Oregon, and the speech that everybody is kind of harping on right now. And then we'll get into the nuances of this because there are many of them. Yeah. So first, I think that what uh, Coach Prime has done at Colorado is nothing short of miraculous, flipping this roster that quickly, turning them into a contender. Colorado is a good school, and they've you know, they had a Heisman Trophy winner in 1994. They won a national championship in 1990. So it's not like this is, you know, DeVry or Phoenix Online or something like that. This is a real school with a real proud tradition, but they've been terrible for the last few years. In 2016, I think they won 10 games. And besides that, they haven't won more than eight games, I think, since 2001, something like that. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a long time. So what he's been able to do there has been fantastic, but... Oregon was a 21-point uh, favorite going into this game. That line, I even thought that line was a little, was a, you know, was a little too favorable to Colorado when, when it was released. You know, people who want to take shots at Coach Prime, they can, they can get their shots in right now, but those of us who followed the college football very, very seriously knew that Colorado was going to absolutely get worked in this game. Like, they had no shot here. If you've watched football at all, you would have to yeah. know that Colorado is going to get rolled. But I think what got lost in all of this, just my opinion, is what you talked about, the miraculous nature of what he has done to take a program that had one win prior and really nothing to build on. Because many times these guys take over a program, they have something to build on. But at Colorado, you can make the argument that they had next to nothing. And that showed in how we use the transfer portal. What were there, three guys from last year's squad on the team? Yeah, something like that. It's extremely low. And to do what he is doing... It's a win regardless of what happens in the overall end of the season, right? With whatever their record is, they're probably two or three years ahead of schedule. You could make that argument. And it's because of what he has done there. And people, I think, are missing the boat on that completely and mm -hmm. focusing in on, well, they got rolled in this game. Well, they should have because it'd be more of an indictment probably on Oregon if they struggled in this game. Yeah. And the thing is that one thing that we found in college football that you can't do in the transfer portal is playing the trenches. You can't build an offensive or defensive line through the portal. You can get pieces here and there that fit in. Uh, certainly my team, the Michigan Wolverines, have done that over the last couple of years, bringing in high-quality high offensive linemen to plug, plug and play. But you cannot build an entire offensive line out of whole cloth in the transfer portal. doesn't work. You have to develop in the system, play for years, build continuity. And so a team like Oregon that has that is always going to manhandle a team like Colorado that doesn't have it, especially when Oregon can match or even exceed at the other positions. I mean, Bo Nix is a legitimate Heisman contender. He's a better quarterback than Shadura Sanders. Yeah, right now, it I mean, doesn't mean Shadura Sanders can't get better. Right. But in but, this but moment, right coming now, into this game, Bo Nix yes. was a legitimate quarterback. And yes. even though I felt like he'd been in the league for eight years, but my <laughs> point being is he should they should have rolled them in this game. 
But what made news to me was, again, nothing on the football field. It had everything to do with all the pregame hype. Now, I get it, okay? Mm -hmm. Like, you and I both know that there are fan bases and there are media outlets that hype all these teams that we just get sick of hearing about. Like, Mike Greenberg talks about the Jets, the Cowboys, the Packers, Aaron Rodgers. We get tired of hearing of those things. And you could be—I think it'd be fair if you felt like, okay— I'm tired of hearing about Colorado. Fine, right? There's a lot of good stories in college football, but it's the most compelling story in the country, bar none, in any sport. I will gladly sit here and say this. And so ESPN, of course, talks about how they get access to Oregon's locker room pregame. And you hear the speech and everything. And I mean, to surmise it, basically, it was we're here for wins and not clicks. I don't remember exactly what he said, but that was the gist of it. And it seemed very personal. To me, it did anyway. And the play on the field kind of felt that way, too, because they weren't letting up on the gas pedal. And it's just, it was a weird thing because there are so many narratives now about it that I felt like are just kind of crazy. Like to me, it felt like don't most coaches use locker room material like this to motivate their team. The only part of it that I took, not offense to necessarily, was he let them in the locker room for a reason. Like he didn't have to do that. That part of it is what I felt like okay, that feels like an intentional move. Like it's performative at that point. But if he says that behind closed doors, who cares? That's what coaches do all the time. So I, I agree with you that it's performative, but the word performative implies inauthenticity. And I don't think it was inauthentic at all. Like I think he let them in to see what he was going to say anyways. And he was smart to do that. So first of all, uh, this this speech was also done for clicks, but I don't think it matters you know, this is a sport that is played on the field and in recruiting and in recruiting, you have to be on social media. That's where, I mean, every listener out there has teenagers, you know, they're on social media all the time. Well, that's who these college coaches are trying to recruit to come play for them. So you have to be on social media. You have to be viral. He knew the speech would do that. I don't think there's anything wrong with this, with this speech. I mean, uh, he said that, that they're about substance and not style. They're going to put an end to the Hollywood story. And that's true. I mean, the Ducks are more about substance than style. Their uniform's exempted. Colorado is more style than substance, substance right now, which Coach Prime himself has even referred to. He went on game day and said that he he said, once I get the big boys I need to look out, he knows he doesn't have the lines to compete against an Oregon right now. I can see why Coach Prime would try to use that speech as fuel for himself and for his squad. There was nothing wrong with this speech. It was a great speech to the team. And honestly, Dan Lanning could have come out and been like, uh, he, I mean, he could just say nothing. He could just walk out of the room and they still would have won by 42 points because Oregon is that much better than Colorado. You're 100% right about the fact that it was a recruiting, or is it, it was a recruiting, recruiting measure. Like he's thinking about the kids that could want to go to Oregon after this season, not the kids that are on this team right now. And yes, I probably used the wrong word performative, but I think you understood what I was trying right. to say was yes. by allowing them in, it was intentional, but he meant what he said. Like he wanted to go out there and do what they did and to prove a point really to their kids or to his kids that they are a great football team. And I think that they did that. But I noticed, though, and I'm sure you did, too, that there are a lot of people who are super happy about this in a way that was so uncomfortable, so unreasonable. And just these people must not experience joy anywhere in their life. I'd like to see a Venn diagram of people who were at January 6th and people who don't like Coach Prime. And it can't be a flat circle because there's so many people that don't like Coach Prime that weren't there. But attitudinally, you know what I mean, right? Like there's people don't like Coach Prime and they didn't like Prime Time as a player either. And it's for the same reason. And it seems pretty clear the reason, the reason why that is. 
Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a guy who has bravado, who has also accolades to go with this bravado. Most people, you and I included, do not like people who talk too much and never perform, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're talking about the Kadarius Tonys of the world, brick hands. But <laughs> the point being is that Deion Sanders has walked the walk and talked the talk in many avenues, just about everything that he has done in mm-hmm. the pros, in college, in baseball, in broadcasting, and now he's a coach. And he's done success or had success everywhere that he has gone. So if you don't like his shtick, it's because you don't like people who are successful because you yourself are probably not successful, at least in my opinion. But I said last week to Cleve that the thing that they have in common was that they're mostly old and mostly white. And I'm happy to say that because it is true. Most of the people that I have talked to that are like, I can't stand this guy, have that in common. And it's, it's not an indictment on every single white person out there. It just is a fact of the matter that these are the people that I'm talking to. And I'm glad to not be one of those people to be able to look at it and say, and I think I said this to you, college football is supposed to be fun. And this is like the best kind of fun that college football needs because I'm tired of Nick Saban, quite honestly. So, yeah, I have a few a few thoughts on that. So, first of all, for the listeners who might not be able to tell, I am, in fact, black. So when I get on this tie right here, that can be important for people who can't see me. Honestly, it would have been funnier if they didn't know. That is that is true. Just uh, having, having no idea. But so, first of all, the people who are old now, and don't like him weren't old when he was coming into the league in 1989 and they still didn't like him then i while age is important right it's not like they were like oh huge fans when he when they were 30 now they're sick of him when he when he's 60 right the reason that this story with coach prime has so many racial i mean overtones right to it is that deon sanders is bringing an overwhelming blackness to college football and it's making people uncomfortable what he's what he's doing and how to say this the worst kind of white people and status quo white people tend to actually be okay with the presence of black people they're not okay with the presence of blackness especially when it's overwhelming like this college football coaching is a predominantly white profession and what uh Deion Sanders is doing is that he's showing that you can be successful while being unapologetically black in what you're doing. Uh, It's a difference between what he's doing here and somebody like Barack Obama is president. Barack Obama was a president who was black. He was not overwhelmingly black culturally as president. The fact that Dion is successful and is going to continue to be successful will make people uncomfortable. And the thing is, is that if you are uncomfortable with Dion, with his shtick, what he represents, that doesn't actually say anything particularly negative about you personally. In the United States, whiteness and white culture is seen as the norm. And so for white people, primetime, Deion Sanders feels like an counterculture outsider coming in. For black people, it's the same as Muhammad Ali or Colin Kaepernick or anybody else who seems disruptive to white people, but we're just like... Martin Luther King, right? Like people who seem destructive, but they're like, yeah, just a reverend or he's just a boxer. Like he's just sort of, just sort of doing, um, doing his thing. Uh, I do want to say too, that I personally would not choose to play for Deion Sanders. Really? Yeah. Because his, right. Because there's many different ways to be black culturally and religious and swaggy is not me. I am neither of those things. But I would sign up to play for Marcus Freeman or James Franklin in a second. 
And what Deion Sanders is doing at Colorado is going to open the door for so many other young black head coaches to get gigs that will. So people who like Deion can go play for Deion. People like me who would not have chosen to play for Deion Sanders will I ignore Nick Saban, ignore Dabo Sweeney, ignore Brian Kelly because Marcus Freeman and James Franklin and others like them are options. And there's going to be more of those options. And that is what's making people uncomfortable, really, even if they don't quite realize it. The presence of black people is not unsettling anymore, especially in public places. But blackness is, especially when it's a, a scenario where you're not expecting it. Yeah, I definitely see your point on that. And it's a nuance. Like I said, there are a lot of nuances to this that I think need to be explored because it's not, for lack of a better term, a black and white issue in terms of the global idea of it. But even uh, me on social media has seen a lot of black people arguing with other black people about Deion Sanders and his place and what he is doing. And I think it's speaking to exactly what you're talking about, that people aren't realizing what this is going to turn into, that This doesn't have to be your representation of the way that you experience black culture. It can be something else. You can find that something else. And I think that in this, you're absolutely right. The Marcus Freemans of the world, the James Franklins of the world who are successful in their own right, doing it their own way, Mm -hmm. are going to have more of a platform because Notre Dame right now is theoretically on the rise, right? They're they're in a good place with Marcus Freeman at the helm, the way that he is doing business. And I think people are missing the point in that completely in terms of Deion Sanders, like they're they're so married to the flashiness. It doesn't have to be representative of every single black coach that's out there. It's the fact that what he is doing is opening these doors. And I even said, and maybe this is too hyperbolic, but I said the best thing would be Deion Sanders across from the field from Nick Saban for the national title. Like this would be the representation <laughs> of him and this movement being the norm in college football. And you want to talk about opening doors. That would be something that would be incredible appointment television wouldn't even begin to describe what that would be. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think Nick Saban is actually the proper allegory for Deion Sanders on the other side, although he's obviously the most successful. I think it's Dabo Sweeney. Yes. Overly religious, in my opinion, cult of personality. Uh, I don't think Deion's really doing a lot of the X's and O's, right? I think he's more like the motivational type, which is fine. Yeah. But that's true with Dabo too. You know, I think he's, I think that's more what it's like. The difference is, is that once people see how successful Deion Sanders is at building programs because of being able to recruit the players to come play for him, every major program is going to realize that they're going to need an engaging black head coach to be able to compete with all the other engaging black head coaches. Notre Dame and Penn State are going to see an uptick in recruiting now because of Deion Sanders, because they have Freeman and Franklin. So if you're saying Jim Harbaugh goes to the NFL next year and you're Michigan looking to hire a coach, some stodgy old white guy might not be the way to go, even if they are otherwise qualified because what Deion is doing, because the players are recruiting are not stodgy old white guys and it's not going to have to be the only option anymore. And that's what makes people uncomfortable. Do you think this will translate or could translate to the NFL as well? Because you know the NFL has a well-documented issue with black representation at the head coach in that there's 32 head coaches, but not many black head coaches and how representative black people are in the workforce in the NFL. Do you think that this could lead to something like that in the future? Yes, but not not directly, not because I don't think it's going to be, oh, look at what what Dan Sanders is doing in the college level. We need to hire more black coaches in the NFL. 
I think there will Dion will create more opportunities for black head coaches in the college ranks by necessity to be able to keep up with recruiting. And therefore, with those opportunities at the college level will come opportunities at the NFL level, right? We're going to start getting black Steve Spurrier's, Jim Harbaugh's, Nick Saban's that then have the opportunity to go coach in the NFL after because of Dion. So the NFL won't, won't like seek to hire Dion or somebody like him, but other coaches will get opportunities because of what Dion is doing. Not to derail how amazing this back and forth is, but what would a black Dabo Swinney look like? I think he I think he'd be about six foot one, blazing speed, Jerry Curl in college, love to wear gold, refer to himself by his own nickname, sunglasses and hats. Like I really do think that they're that they're just different culture, same, same idea. And I would never play for Dabo either. I'm not even sure I would play for Dabo, and I probably look more the part than what he generally <laughs> tends to like on his teams, but I mean, you bring up a lot of great points about Coach Prime, and I was sad to see how negative and how much vitriol there was over the fact that he lost a damn football game. And you're right, it's rooted in a lot of different things. And I want to switch to another guy who is probably your favorite person in the entire world, and that is Ryan Day of Ohio State. So a little bit of nugget for you. Coach was actually at that game last week. He managed to score tickets to the game. Awesome. Has not been the same since, and that is because Notre Dame lost in excruciating fashion, 17-14 at the end of the game. Once again, while the game was fine, it was after that piqued my interest, and it was Ryan Day's comments when he was asked about the performance of his football team, and I don't have that clip here, but essentially, apparently, he took umbrage to something that Lou Holtz, of all people, said in the pregame lead-up to this. Now, you know how this works, man. Pundits, content creators like us, we say stuff. Does it really matter what we say? We all have opinions. At the end of the day, it's whatever happens on the football field. But I just kind of rolled my eyes super hard listening to Ryan Day talk about what Lou Holtz said. Now I get it. You stand up for your football team. But in my mind, he went so over the top talking about, is it Ohio versus the world and all this stuff? And I just had to ask myself, does this make people like me hate this team even more? And I think the answer to that is 100% yes. Yeah, so as I stated earlier, I am a Michigan fan, so the listeners can take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. So no. Lou Holtz, Lou Holtz called Ohio State soft. Yes, right. That's what he said. Lou Holtz coached Notre Dame. I know. He of course is going to come out on Notre Dame's side in this discussion or whatever in a lounge chair. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I would take a thousand Ryan Days over one Lou Holtz. So yes. we're talking about who I don't like in this discussion. It's definitely Lou Holtz, hundred percent, over Ryan Day. But I do want to get something straight. Ohio State is pillow soft, soft, and they have been for a couple of years now. Just a couple, not not long. Over the last couple of years, they've been soft. They've had a hard time developing linemen either side of the ball. They get talented linemen to come there, so they're not bad, but they don't grow and get better while they're there. And that's because they have a soft program. And Ryan Day knows that if he gets trucked by Michigan for a third year in a row, he's getting fired. Yes, I, I wanted to bring that up with you because – his speech, and it, it seemed almost like fake intense to me. Now, maybe it wasn't, but it seemed fake intense. It seemed like I need to prove a point for my team that these people can't call my team soft. When in reality, and Coach has said this on this show before, every coach knows what they have in that locker room, every single one of them. So he has yes. to know what you know, that this team doesn't have the kind of, to use a gorilla monsoon term, intestinal fortitude that it's going to take to win the national title against these other programs that 100% do. And just like we talked about with Colorado, you build your teams at the line. And whether they, I mean, they won this game on the line, right? Like that's how they won at the end of the game. But 
is it going to work against all these other teams, right? Is it going to work as they get forward? Is it going to work against Michigan? And that's the only game that matters, right? It's the yeah. only game that matters. And he's staring at a three-game losing streak, and a lot of people, even Vegas, are picking Michigan to win that game. And he yeah. has to be thinking about that as he's saying this, right? This early in the season, he's got to be thinking about it. Yes, because this whole this whole tirade he went on in this post-game uh, on-the-field thing. So cheesy. If you look at it instead, if you view him as a politician trying to get elected, it makes a lot more sense. I'm your guy. The constituents should back me because I'm going to fight for you. That's, that's the case he's making. He's trying to make his case to why he should not be fired when he does get trucked by Michigan again because that is coming. Excellent point. Yeah, because what we saw in this game again in the last couple games is that this team is not built to beat Michigan. This team is built to beat USC. Notre Dame. It's built to beat teams like that, right? It's not It's not even really built to beat Notre Dame. This goes best to seven if they play a series. Yes, it does. Right? You know, obviously, Ohio State is capable of beating Michigan, right? They're so talented. But they are soft, and their softness is why they've lost to Michigan two years in a row, and they lost by over 20 points both times. Ryan Day has two Big Ten losses in his entire time at Ohio State. If it becomes three and it's Michigan, he's getting fired because they will not put up with that and Mike Vrabel might be available, but they are not putting up with that. The other thing you mentioned is that, does this make you hate Ohio State even more? Well, for me, that's obviously impossible. It's already maximum level. I hate them too. But I do want to say, while Ohio State is easily one of the worst fan bases in the country, the like 10% of them that are good fans are some of the best fans. Yeah. Some of the best fans. Now, the rest are all just eating beef jerky, wearing at a hearty, horrible wannabe UFC guy. But the 10% that are great fans are some of the best fans you will find anywhere. Excellent point about the politician, that this is really politicking for his job. Because, I, again, as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, this can't be about what Lou Holtz said. I mean, I'm sure in some way it did hit a nerve. But, like, Lou Holtz has been a senile old man for, like, 15 years. And that was when he was back on ESPN television doing college football coverage. So like, I get it. Lou Holtz is, he's kind of like Joe Namath in that way. Like you're going to trot him out because he's a guy who has a pedigree. He's won at Notre Dame. He coached there. I mean, I get it, right? You do this all the time. You bring your stars out. WWE is notorious for this. Need a ratings bump? Let's get the rock out there. Yeah. But what Lou Holtz said, like, why do you care so much? Like why? And it felt so derivative. Like it just, it did not feel real in the sense like Ryan Day should, and and this is it, this is a good point. Ryan Day is soft himself if he's going to take something that Lou Holtz said so damn personally. He is representative of what you said about this team. And this video is going to go so viral because Ohio State fans are going to just dump all over us. And I'm here for all of it. All of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, I honestly don't care. Ryan Day is soft. That's why the team is soft now too, because it's taking on, Right, Brady Hoke and Rich Rod Michigan teams were soft because the coaches were soft. That's that's the thing. They don't have a hard coach. And I am not looking forward to when Mike Vrabel becomes the head coach at Ohio State. That is going to be a nightmare as a Michigan fan. But in the meantime, they've got this guy who is soft and is easy to get run over. Yeah, I the Ohio State fans can uh can come for me, especially online. It's fine. A lot of misspellings, I assume. So let me ask you this a little bit of a tangent. What makes a coach hard versus soft in your opinion. And if you take that out of context, that's just your own problem. But my point being is like, you talk about Mike Vrabel and Mike Vrabel being a coach that you're scared of. And Ryan Day is not a coach that you're scared of, despite the fact that I'm sure in his mind, when he looks in the mirror, he sees himself as what he looks like, right? Even though he looks like he's constantly sunburned all the time. That's just 
something I can't unsee. But in your mind, like what differentiates coaches when it comes to that kind of stuff? Because I would assume you would look at Deion Sanders and call him not a soft coach, right? No, not at all. Not at all. So it's it's kind of hard to put into words. It's kind of like the Supreme Court defining pornography. You know, you know it when you see it. Got feeling. Right. If I say Brandon Staley's a soft coach, nobody's going to argue with me. We all know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Um, and I think that it's more... I think that coaches that are that are tough and create toughness, real authentic toughness within their teams are very incredibly authentic. Somebody like Deion Sanders, somebody like Jim Harbaugh, somebody like Nick Saban, these people are all lunatics, but they are authentically crazy in the way that they're crazy. Right. Bill Parcells, you know, these people are the real deal in how in how they are. And I feel like other some coaches are trying to do impressions of that when it comes to creating toughness and it's never going to work. You know, all football coaches preach toughness. Always. It's an important part of football. They're all going to say we need it, we need to do it or whatever. But if you're not actually about it, it's not going to work for you. And your players can see that too. Like your players yes. know if you're faking it to make it. And that's just, that That sums up exactly what I felt like watching that is that he felt like he was faking it. And I don't I don't know who he was trying to impress or who he was trying to convince. And very clearly, it's the Ohio State Board of Directors because he wants to keep his job. Let me ask you, though, if he loses to Michigan and like last year makes the playoff and ends up going to the national title game or even hell winning the national title, does that save his job? If he wins the national championship, it saves his job. If they go to the playoff, they won't play Michigan in the first round because they won't rematch the first round. So if they make the national title game, and lose a rematch to Michigan. Now he's got four in a row. He's he's ultra fired. Oh yeah, so, right. But but they're not they're not going to the playoff this year if they if they, if they lose to Michigan. First of all, Michigan's not going to be their first loss this year. They're they're going to stumble somewhere else to a team that they probably shouldn't, or they're just going to lose to Penn State, who's capable of beating them as well. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to look at them this year and be like, this team deserves to get in over some other conference conference champion. That's a good point. Well, Dave, I mean, these two coaches couldn't be any different. And I feel like one of them is going to be a head coach next year and the other one is not. But before we move on to some NFL talk, which I know you're a very big fan of and an expert on, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, New Era Caps. What's up, everyone? Iceman here. New Era Cap is the official headwear provider of the MLB, NFL, and the NBA, and a global brand of sport, culture, and self-expression for over 100 years. Whether it's to match your fit of the day or root on your favorite sports team, New Era Cap will always have you covered. As a born and raised New Englander and former marathon runner, the Boston Marathon holds a special place in my heart. The Red Sox New Era City Connect series designed in the Boston Marathon's colors are a great reminder to me of my heritage, my past, present, and future on full display. I wear this hat often, both on and off camera. If you want to support your favorite team, Wear what the players wear or accentuate your favorite pair of sneakers, New Era has you covered. Shop the official headwear by visiting neweracap.com slash Iceman and use code Iceman at checkout and get 15% off. That's right, 15% off. Get after it and save now. All right, Dave. So the NFL is rolling right along. It's something that I know you love very much. And when we used yes. to do political football together, we did a lot of talking without Cleve. I don't know if you remember that, the PF post game <laughs> that we used to do. And so I'm watching the NFL this week and you and I and Cleve always text throughout the entire weekend, which is one of the best parts of it, because there's something about having a commentary. Like I know when a comment is coming from Cleve after I see something on Red Zone, and I know when a rebuttal is coming from you and so forth. And I think we all kind of have this weird, this weird wavelength of sort of how it works. But 
There were many things talked about this NFL weekend, and not of one of them was more interesting than the Miami Dolphins to me. You see the score, and you, you tell somebody who, let's say an alien lands from some other planet, and you try to tell them what the Miami Dolphins are all about or what football is all about, and you show them the score of this game. I've never seen anything like it. Obviously, not many people have. I think it was, what, like 1910, the last time somebody scored or whatever it was, <laughs> many points. But it was an unbelievable display of offensive prowess. It was an unbelievable display of the potential of the future of this league. And I'm just, I'm so intrigued by watching this team. You think that I wouldn't be with my team being in that division, but as a lover of just football, I could not believe what I was seeing. And I'm very happy to say that the Miami Dolphins have arrived. Yes. Uh, and I actually think they arrived last year and then Tua kept getting concussions. Oh, of course. This team, this team is ready to go. So when I do my notes for political football or, or this show, or I got, I got notes, come prepare. I always type out the stats for the players that we're discussing because you do go pretty in depth on like what happened with, within each game. And I want like the numbers to get stuck in my head. I took one look at the stat sheet for the Dolphins players and I just copied and pasted. I just, I just copied and pasted the whole thing right here because I'm not about to try to type all this out. I mean, these numbers are absurd across the board. It's not even absurd. It's, it's almost not even like if you and I sat and discussed all the range of outcomes or permutations of how this game could have gone this weekend, I'm not sure 70 to 20 with the kind of stat lines that we saw for not just one, not just two, not just three, but the whole damn team, like the whole yeah. damn team, including the backup, White Mike, including him. Yes. Everybody got a taste of this game. I don't think you and I would have even said that. Like, I don't even think that it would have been close to a discussion. It would never have been. No, because if I thought this game, the Dolphins scored 70 points in a game, I would have played many more of them in DFS. Yes. This, uh, this last weekend. So uh, Devin Achan, as he has clarified, he wants his name to be pronounced, David Achan. A-chan goes, 18 carries for 203 yards and two touchdowns. Also has four catches for 30 yards and two touchdowns. He is now the running back five on the season in fantasy, and he did not play in week one. And that's like the third most absurd thing that happened in this game. We would never predict the team to score 70 in a game. I mean, that's a model breaker right there. And I thought watching this game, well, I thought a couple things. One, I thought that, that the Broncos were extremely slow on defense. And the Dolphins, you know, they're so fast. They have like the five fastest recorded times on the field this year are all from all from players on the Dolphins. That speed obviously gave the Broncos the Broncos fits. And now I'm looking around the league to see who else is really slow on defense, like New England. And I'm starting to get a little concerned for some of these other teams that they're going to play. Absolutely. And by the way, one of the five fastest speeds on the field was Mike McDaniel running to the to the <laughs> locker room on Sunday night. That was that was pretty terrific. But uh, the Dolphins are interesting because they have a young, likable team. At least to me, they seem very likable. All these guys seem to gel together. They love playing with each other. They're having fun. Like they look like you took a Pop Warner team and just made them the Miami Dolphins and put them out there. Like they're playing football the way that you learn to play football. You learn to have fun playing this sport. Mike McDaniel obviously has a beat on these guys in a way that is just amazing. And he knows how to coach these specific guys. He knows the pieces that they need to get in there. And old Vic Fangio gets to sit back there and have a defense that has, I don't want to say underperformed, but I think people thought that they were going to be like this hard-nosed, tough defense. They haven't really needed to be because they've been just so out front on teams. Even the New England game. New England did the best that they could to slow down that offense and offensively somehow we're still in the game late, but it didn't matter because right. they had just enough firepower, even being slowed down 
to stay one step or two steps ahead of a team that tried to outsmart them, right? Like, and obviously Sean Payton and the Broncos couldn't do that. They couldn't do that at all. And that's the part to me that is interesting because the Dolphins should be fun. We should all be excited about watching them. If you hate them, they sit in the same camp about people who hate Deion Sanders, right? Like this should be a team that you love to watch if you love to watch football. That's 100% mm-hmm. period. Tua is a surgeon, a brain surgeon within like 15 yards. If he throws a pass that goes less than 15 yards, it's going to be it's completed. Perfect. It's going to be completed. Yeah. And it none of that stuff matters anymore. All of this talk that we had about can Tua do this? Is Tua for real? The only question we have is will he get another concussion? And you and I both hope that that does not happen because it could be life altering. But that's football. It could. So now on the other side of this, you have the Broncos. And two weeks in a row, I've texted you guys, LOL Broncos. And I think that it's the most appropriate thing that you could say about them right now because this is a team, and I don't know if you agree with this, they brought in Sean Payton thinking that Nathaniel Hackett was the only problem that they had. And now they're facing an unprecedented loss, possibly having a locker room that doesn't like anybody in this locker room, right? And now they're staring at 0-3. Their season is pretty much done because statistically teams that start 0-3 do not make the playoffs. I think that the Broncos are in more trouble than even Sean Payton realizes. Yeah, I think the Broncos are done too, mainly because that defense is not, I mean, they, they play in the, the AFC West. The Raiders put 40 on them. You know, I, I think they're done too. And I think you're right about Sean Payton. I think there's a strong chance that Sean Payton has already lost the locker room. I do. Because his brand of coaching may not go over very well with players anymore, right? That sort of like hard-nosed drill sergeant style of coaching the modern version of that is what Dan Campbell does for the Lions. And Dan Campbell and Sean Payton do not coach the same way. No. Right? Dan Campbell coaches the modern version of that. And that's why he's having success. And Sean Payton, he was in New Orleans for a long time. He had the clout of the organization. He doesn't have that in Denver. Right? Jerry Judy is much more of a Bronco than Sean Payton is. Why does he have to do what Sean Payton says? I have a take on Sean Payton that I gave last week, and I got a lot of crap for it today on YouTube because I posted it as a short and I said that I've always felt, and I think I even said this to you once on on air, that Sean Payton got a lot more credit for the Super Bowl that he won than if you look at the body of work for what he accomplished. He had a Hall of Fame quarterback and you are notoriously famous for saying that Mike Tomlin had the same luck, was able to have a Hall of Fame quarterback and be able to kind of ride coattails to the success that he has had. I felt like Sean Payton was that because he had one appearance one appearance, not even just the one win. That's the only appearance that he had. And now he's facing a situation where people thought that he was going to take a year off coming from the way he left that organization. And he's just going to come in there and the team's all of a sudden going to be fixed. And I totally agree with you. I thought he was overrated as a coach. I think that even more now, but I do appreciate what he did for New Orleans because they were perennially losers, the laughing stock of the NFL. And they won a Super Bowl. You can't take that away from them. But here now, today, in 2023, not a successful coach. And I'm not having any of it that people think he's going to turn this around. There is no evidence that there's that big of a gap between Mike McCarthy and Sean Payton. I 100% agree with you. And I think that's, to me, what I've used as the example of Mike McCarthy has won Super Bowl. And that's all he has. That's the one appearance. That's all that he has. And look what he's done in Dallas. Dallas, a soft team. Another soft team because their coach is soft. Mike McCarthy is soft. I don't know if Sean Payton's soft because he seems kind of like a lunatic, and I think Bounty Gate happened within them, so they could he could be a little crazy, but that might have been more Greg Williams. Also, Bounty Gate implies softness. Oh, that's a good point. Corruption is soft. 
right? If you need to be corrupt to be successful, you're soft. I like where your head's at with that. But I just, I think that Sean Payton to me gets, and and the way he carries himself, like I get it, okay? Like Russell Wilson last year did not play well. And you could say that it was Russ. You could say that it was Hackett. There are many things that happened last year. But keep in mind, Dave, two seasons ago, we said this was a team that was a quarterback away. And the quarterback was going to be Aaron Rodgers. And John Elway, for lack of a better term, f***ed around and found out. Correct. And didn't pick him up. And now this is where we are. And John Elway, I'm coming for you too. Because John Elway, you are an overrated executive. You are running on the cloud of winning those Super Bowls in Denver. But think about the quarterbacks that he has brought on and paid. Brock Osweiler, $80 million. Okay? And if not for Peyton Manning, John Elway would not be an executive there. Or it would not have lasted as long as he did. There's no evidence that John Elway is any better than Matt Millen. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, we're just, we're, we're, we're making comparisons all over the place. I mean, Matt Millen managed at least draft Calvin Johnson. Now he didn't get to reap the benefits because he got fired immediately, but he did draft Calvin Johnson, which is sort of like bringing in Peyton Manning. One other thing that you did bring up about this game though, in the, in the, in the pre-show, and I wanted your thoughts on this. What about the idea of the Dolphins running up the score? So I don't know if I believe that you can run up the score in the pros because I think they're professionals. You're getting paid a lot of money to play football. And at some point in time, like this isn't, the Dolphins didn't stick to out there all the way till four zeros on the clock, right? Mike White came in and they were still dropping dimes on these guys. So like, if you can't stop them, you can't stop them. But the one aspect of it that I thought was interesting was Mike McDaniel not electing to kick a field goal at the end of the game to get the record. Now, I don't think that that makes him soft. I think that that's just, at that point, you have the win in hand, so whatever. I personally would have loved to see them break the record because I think they deserved it for the way that they played. That's the only reason that I would like to see them kick it, but I understand why he doesn't kick it, right? I mean, at that point, you've already, like, they're they're not only bloodied on the side of the road, like, they're roadkill at this point. They're done. And so I don't think you can run up the score. And all these people that we're talking about, they need to let off the gas. They did. They did, and all these backups got their stats. So here's the thing. I do not believe that you can run up the score in Hello Cat, that you can run up the score in the pros either. I think it's impossible. So every team should be trying to score as many points as possible for as long as there's time on the clock. The only mitigating factor is that you um, take out the starters to protect their health and to get reps for the backups. But the backups should be trying to score as much as they possibly can while there's still time left on the clock. And they did. Yes. And the other thing is, I don't think this only extends to the pros. I think it extends all the way down to the junior varsity level of high school. Once the wins and losses start counting, every team should be doing everything they can to pulverize their opponent as much as they can within the bounds and rules of the game. And nobody getting hurt. Like, you obviously don't want to see people get hurt if you can. But that actually brings up another segue, or not even a segue, another trans, not even a transition, another, another topic or tangent. That's what I'm looking for. But in the Bears-Chiefs game, Mahomes twisted his ankle. I think it was the same ankle that he hurt last year during their playoff run. And it's, what, 34 to nothing at halftime? And he comes out there after the half, and I'm like, why is he out here? This is a situation where this is your guy. The Bears are not coming back from 34 down. I can guarantee you that. I don't have to be a coach to know this. I'm just watching this football team not be able to do anything for three weeks. And I was like, why is Mahomes out there? And I don't think he was in there for all that much longer, but it goes to your point of trying to score as much as possible. I get that, but it seemed kind of unnecessary to me. I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. So I don't know why they left him in the game. I would have taken him out, but 
if I had to guess, I would say that he wanted to stay in just to demonstrate the injury wasn't that serious. Like he probably just, it probably hurt a lot, but there probably wasn't any structural damage done. And he just wanted to show everybody like, hey, I'm fine. I'll be playing next week when we go to the Jets on Sunday night. There's not an issue here. It just show everybody that. And then he left the game after he was able to able to display that. So that's that's conjecture on my part, but it's about the only thing I can think of that'd be a reasonable, a reasonable reason why they would do that. Yeah. And Andy Reid gets a pass because he's obviously a good head coach. I mean, he's a multiple time Super Bowl winner. And I watched the quarterback documentary and it's obvious that he and Mahomes are very much on the same page with things. And and so I guess you have that relationship. You give Mahomes a little bit of leeway and maybe you're right to show that, hey, we're okay. And I think they march right down the field and score too, right? I thought of something. Did he hurt his ankle before Travis Kelsey got his touchdown? I don't know. That's a good point. Because if, if he did, he stayed in to get his boy that touchdown in front of Taylor Swift. So I listened to you guys this morning and I heard you talking about it. Now, I just want to be clear. When I say this, I, I understand the, the nuances and points that are made elsewhere. But like, I couldn't have cared less about Taylor Swift being at that game. However, from a ratings perspective, from the NFL's perspective, all the business side of it, that was about the best thing that could have happened to the NFL. Yeah, so as a person who likes Taylor Swift's music, I thought it was fantastic that that she was there. They're getting all the hoopla, all the hype. And even more than that, she is the most famous person in the world right now who's like not a politician. Or Messi, maybe, or Ronaldo. I don't know. What do you think? No, because they're not famous in the United States. And we got 350 million people. So I bet the, like, if you showed a picture of Cristiano Ronaldo in the United States, people aren't going to know who that is much less than Taylor Swift. And if they're even somewhat equal everywhere else, that's going to give the edge to Taylor. So I think the soccer players are interesting, but because Taylor's so popular here, that that gives that gives her the edge. And so I think that just having her be there and the interest it creates from her fans coming in, seeing the sport, seeing the games, wanting to watch the games, maybe not give their partners as much grief about wanting to watch the games, that sort of thing, I thought was fantastic. Also, I like Taylor Swift, so I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I don't really have a feeling either way in Taylor Swift. Like, that wasn't why. It just felt like they constantly were showing her, and I thought, I mean, it's cool that she's there, but, like, how much are we getting from that? But as I thought about it, as the game kind of went on, I realized, I mean, this is just amazing for the NFL because the NFL's goal at the end of the day is as many eyes on the product as possible because it's as many dollars that are coming in behind the shield. And that's what they're getting. But I'll give you even another anecdote on this. It's affecting another market right now because Taylor Swift was pictured wearing this one type of New Balance shoe that isn't even remotely popular. But now it's remotely popular to the point that New Balance is sold out of them. And (laughs) it's just a generic sort of New Balance shoe that I think it's the 550 is the model. And you can look it up. And now it's sold out. People are just flocking to it. And I'm just curious as to when these two Venn diagrams are going to come together. And then all the people that are Taylor Swift fans who then realize they have no appetite for football are like, I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm out of this for good. Or do you think that it will have some overlap and people will say, you know, football really isn't that bad? So I think that, let's say every Taylor Swift fan, every Swiftie in the United States watches for the next four Chiefs games while this is all super hyped up and whatever, right? If 0.1% of them are retained as NFL fans, that's going to be like one and a half million people that they, that they would add. I would love to get Iceman and Coach and political football in front of that audience and them to tell me 0.01% of people are going to continue listening, are going to subscribe. It'd be like, goodbye, day job. 
you know, this is what we're doing from now on, right? So I made that point. I don't know if you remember, again, another peek behind the curtain, but we had that one show that was a part of the network and they had a TikToker on their show who had 10 million followers and they did not do any sort of promotion of it in any way. And when we confronted them about it, I say confront, but it was more like asked them about it. They're like, we didn't even think about it. And I put those exact numbers in front of them. You have 10 million people. If you get 0.1% of those people to stick around, here's how many new subscribers you have to your content. This is what you just missed out on. And it was like a thousand people or something like that. And it's like, oh, I didn't realize that. Well, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And you're doing what you're doing because <laughs> this is the missed opportunity that you have. And it extends to anything. The NFL obviously is just fine. Does it need those one and a half million people? Probably not. It would probably be just fine without them. But does it welcome them with open arms? You bet. I actually, I actually, actually disagree with that. I think it does need them because they're more. Those people are more likely to be younger than the average football fan and more female than the average football fan. Good point. And so increasing across those two demographics would be huge for the NFL, right? It's like Taylor Swift is bringing in a bunch of middle-aged dudes. No, right? Because we're already watching the NFL anyways, right? It's the people that she would bring to the sport don't fit the demographics generally that are currently watching the sport. And that would be huge for them. And baseball would love to get a million new young people watching. The average age of a baseball viewer right now is like 65. So they definitely need the help. But do you really think that the NFL has an age problem with its prime demographic or at least its prime viewer? I think anything that is primarily distributed on main old school television has an age problem. I don't know that like people being born today are going to sit and watch NBC for three hours to watch a football game. They'll be like, I will just catch the 13 minute YouTube clip. That's all I need. And I'm out. Fascinating thought. And I thought that I was breaking the mold by watching Red Zone. What I realized is that I'm even older because I will sit there for seven hours of commercial free football and not three hours sounds reasonable in that regard. But I think you're right. I mean, even Major League Baseball, if you have the MLB TV package, they have condensed games that are down to eight minutes. A baseball oh, game amazing. in eight minutes, which is, it is amazing. I mean, I was able to hack somebody's or share it with them and I was watching like three games a morning. It was terrific. And I'm like, there's no way I could do this. I could not watch a full baseball game anymore. And I never thought that the NFL would find themselves in that position because the NFL seems like this juggernaut that just keeps rolling and has nothing to stop them. The other thing, the other thing, too, for the NFL is that it's going to turn to be like the NBA as not even Zoomers, because Zoomers are now into their 20s, but Generation Alpha coming behind them because of social media, because of being able to see all the games everywhere. People won't be as much fans of teams as they will players. Yeah, that's a good point. And so having somebody sit and watch an entire game because you're watching your team is different. If you like a player, you just need to see what that player did. You don't need to see what the team did, right? And so if that continues to be the case, we're not going to have people sitting and watching three-hour-long football games or even watching the red zone because all they want to see is what Lamar Jackson is doing or Patrick Mahomes is doing, right? And it's, that's going to get worse and worse. As Like I said, people being born today, it's hard to think about that but we're only 20 years from them being like the target audience. Yeah, that's very true. And 20 years from us being old people doing radio shows, we're going to look like absolute idiots doing <laughs> old school AM radio, which is essentially what we're doing. So that's a good point, though. I mean, I guess people are more focused on players, fantasy, DFS, all that stuff. It makes people think more about the individuals. And I guess mm -hmm. to an extent, me, you, Cleve, Scott, we're kind of in that boat, too, because we watch the entirety of the NFL. We watch Red Zone. 
And it's less about our teams. Like my dad will ask me, did you watch the Patriots game? And I'm like, kind of, because I watched the highlights or whatever was shown on Red Zone. And that fandom to me has waned a little bit because of the presentation of that product. But I didn't think of it even in a hyper sense of it being even, they just want to go find Lamar Jackson's stat line and Lamar Jackson's highlight clip, which is like a minute and a half. Right. Well, it used to be that your connection to the league was your connection through your team. You could only connect with the team in general, but through social media, you can now connect with individuals. So you can follow Lamar Jackson, for example, on every platform and just be a Lamar Jackson fan without being a Ravens fan. You don't know anything about the rest of the Ravens to be a Lamar Jackson fan and know what's going on with Lamar Jackson, what he's doing, what he's promoting, that sort of thing. And so as this continues to become the norm, people won't be as much fans of teams. If you're not a fan of a team, you're not sitting and watching the whole thing. And speaking of people that should not have a connection to the NFL anymore, let's talk about bad NFL head coaches, Dave, because I know this is another situation of of what you liked. And you guys kind of touched on this a little bit briefly, but I'm going to hypothesize. There are 32 head coaches in the league. After watching football on Sunday, I hypothesize that a good eight of them should just be directly fired. And that's a quarter of the people that are coaching NFL teams. It's probably a little bit too many, but I've made a list here and I want to go through some of them. I think... Target A has to be Josh McDaniels doing the dumbest thing I've ever seen a head coach do in my entire life. And I just want to be clear, I liked Josh McDaniels as the Patriots offensive coordinator, but this is his second stint as a head coach. And I've seen enough. I'm done. Yeah. So I agree that every coach that we're about to talk about should be fired, except for one. But Josh McDaniels should be fired into the sun. This field goal decision was atrocious. And so we talked about this on political football, but I brought the data here as well. This was a decision that was so overwhelmingly obvious. And if you know what we're talking about, at the end of the game, there was two minutes and 22 seconds to go, fourth and four from the Steelers' eight-yard line. So they're down by eight, 23 to 15. They had all three timeouts left. McDaniels chose to kick a field goal to make it 23 to 18, kick the ball away, try to use the timeouts for the two-minute warning, and get the ball back with two minutes to score the game-winning touchdown. That is so absurd. Like, even describing it sounds silly. Going for it, just the act of going for it, is worth five points of win percentage, right? And keep in mind, there's only 100 points, so because it's a percentage. So it's worth 5% there. If kicking the field goal, because it's such a short field goal, will work 97% of the time. So kicking the field goal is worth... um an additional 10% chance of winning. Going for it, just make the decision to go for it, itself was worth 15. Succeeding makes it uh, 28% more likely that you will win this game. You know, there are some decisions that are close that aren't intuitive, that you need like analytics nerds to sort of walk you through. They might not be as obvious. This was one of the most brain-dead decisions I've ever seen in my life, and I agree that Mark Davis should fire his barber and they should fire Josh McDaniels. You know that I'm a process over result guy for the most part, that I think that your process can be correct, even if the result doesn't work out, because it happens all the time in our lives. We do the right thing, and it just doesn't work out for one reason or another. It doesn't mean it wasn't the right thing to do. And in this case, this reminded me, do you remember Matt LaFleur a couple years ago against Brady in the NFC Championship game? Very, very similar situation where the score dictates what you're supposed to do. So in this instance, when I was looking at this, they're down by eight. A field goal requires them to get a touchdown. The same way that right now, sitting on fourth down, they have to get a touchdown. And the fact that they have to convert a two-point conversion means nothing because it's a 50-50 proposition most of the time. So you'd like to think that your team could get two yards, but hey, it's the NFL. 
And so kicking a field goal there, it still necessitates them to get a touchdown. And now it makes it harder to get the touchdown because you you give the ball ball back to the other team. Now, I get it. The other team is, I was going to say Mitch Trubisky, but it's Kenny Pickett and the Steelers. I get it, right? Like, you'd like to think that you'd be able to stop them. It's not a guarantee, though. You do what you can to win. It goes back to what we said about running up the score. Do everything that you can in your power to score points and win the football game. And look, this guy took over a playoff team. Now, I get that they weren't the best playoff team in the field, and maybe we thought they were a little fraudulent, but they were a playoff team that then got Devontae Adams, and they have gotten appreciably worse every single game that they've played. That is an indictment on your head coach, and you need to get rid of the guy. Yes. So one thing you always hear announcers say is that an eight-point game is a one-possession game. It's not. That's not true. It's a a one-and-a-half position game because it's 50-50 if you make the two-point conversion or not. Coaches in general should be making decisions as if it's a a one-and-a-half possession game, not a one-possession game. But kicking the field goal here just made it a one-possession game. It does nothing for you. There's no benefit. Right, because like you go for it, you score the touchdown, you miss the two-point conversion, you're still in the same position if you kick the field goal, but now you can get the ball back and kick a field goal to win it. It's just, it's, it's so unbelievably, I mean, I don't even, I don't even know what to say. Like I, it was one of the worst decisions I've ever seen in my life. I couldn't believe what was happening. I don't even like the Raiders and I was just fired up. It was so bad. Well, it's just, it's not what you do, right? Anybody who has watched football long enough knows, and you go on a lot of rants about announcers who don't like when teams go for two in certain situations and look, whatever, right? They're announcers, but like the fans, you can't get by much of the fans in this one. Like this seemed like one of those, if you're a Raiders fan, you're thinking, what in the hell have we just done? Like, I don't understand what we did here. And it didn't matter because even if you go for it and you get it, right? And you get the touchdown and you miss the two point conversion, getting yardage for a field goal is theoretically easier than having to go all the way to the end zone. And so this was just, I have no words for it. I mean, I've said a lot of words about it, but it's like, you have no words for how this man is sitting here in his second head coaching stint, and that's the kind of decision that he makes. And it's just, it goes to show you that some guys that are really great at coordinators cannot handle everything that comes with being a head coach because it's not just how the team performs, it's time management, it's situations like this that you have to think about. And I just don't think that Josh McDaniels has it, and I can't wait for him to be Mac Jones's offensive coordinator next year. <laughs> you think he'll go back to New England? No, he'll go somewhere else. Nick Saban. Nick Saban will polish him up and he'll get another OC job in the NFL. That's usually what happens, right? Isn't yeah. Nick Saban just there to sort of like polish up these guys that people think are absolutely washed? But yeah, the other guy, I think, no, I just want to say this. I don't think Arthur Smith should be fired. That's not what I mean here. But what he's doing in Atlanta is also kind of befuddling me because he's got this core of offensive guys. He's got Bijan Robinson, who looks the part in every way, looks explosive, looks shifty, and just looks great. Like, he looks like you could unleash him now and he would be an all-time great running back until he gets hurt. You have Drake London, who should be a great receiver, seems to have a lot of talent. And you have Kyle Pitts, who's amazing. But you wouldn't know it because he doesn't use any of these guys And that's the thing about Arthur Smith that I don't understand. It seems to me that he is wanting to have a specific type of team, and yet the personnel that he has been given, whether he's been a part of that decision-making or not, I don't know, is completely exactly opposite of the way that he wants to run his football team. And I'm just baffled as to how this is happening and what Arthur Smith should do 
to sort of rectify this because he's got a gold mine if they can get serviceable quarterback play. Yeah, so we talked about uh, on political football that this year I have 907 fantasy teams and I have Kyle Pitts on about 20% of them. I can't believe that was a, that's, that's a mistake because he's so good. But the thing is, is that Arthur Smith should be fired and I'll explain why. The Falcons are going to win double-digit games this year. They're going to win their division. They're going to go to the playoffs and Arthur Smith should absolutely be fired because his process is limiting their ceiling. They have no hope in any game where they cannot control the pace, the tempo, the clock, and the score. We saw this past week against Detroit, my beloved Detroit Lions, Lord help me, Detroit controlled this game beginning to end, right? The Falcons were always chasing the game. The Lions were always out in front, always had them, always had them by the collar. In this game, Kyle Pitts had five catches for 41 yards, and Drake London had two catches for 31 yards. That is unacceptable in a game where you lose by 14, you only score six points, and you're not able to control the game. The Falcons will win 10 to 12 games this year. They're going to go to the playoffs. They're going to come up against Detroit, Philly, Dallas, or San Francisco, and they're going to get obliterated because those teams are going to continue to run up the score on them because it's the playoffs, and they will have no hope of playing from behind. So while Arthur Smith could even win Coach of the Year this year for what he's going to do, his inability to access this obvious ceiling this team has, to me, makes him fireable. They'll never fire him, of course, but to me, fireable. Didn't he come from the Tennessee Titans? Yes. My beloved AFC South. Now, I've said before that the Tennessee Titans the last couple of years have been that team that might win a crappy division, but they're not going to be a player at all. They have in no way are going to make any type of play. And I think they made the AFC Championship one of those years, but whatever, right? Like they, whatever. Arthur Smith kind of is embodying that to me because that's exactly how I feel about the Falcons, that they may win a crappy division, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're good. And I think if they get to the playoffs in that opening round, even as a division winner hosting a game, some of these other teams that are going to come play them on the road are going to smoke them and it's not going to matter. And then the question is, what is he going to do next year? Because you can't keep playing like this. Kyle Pitts, the talent that he has that they're leaving on the table is insane. He had a thousand yards as a rookie, as a tight end. Yes. And he was mossing guys as a tight end. The talent that he has there, can you imagine what it would be like? Imagine what it would be like if he was on the Lions. At least Jerry Goff would get him the damn ball. But now yes. they're not getting it to him. And I think that if you're a head coach in this league and you can't maximize the players that you have, you know how many head coaches would love to have those three guys in skill positions on their team? Are you kidding me? And he's got this and he doesn't know what to do with it. The only thing he knows how to do is grow a stupid mustache. Yes. The other thing, too, that's important to note here is that he didn't just like fall ass backwards into these good players. They spent significant capital on them. Yes. Kyle Pitts was the fourth overall pick. Drake London was the 10th overall pick. And B. John Robinson was the eighth overall pick, which is horrible because he's a running back. But it was the eighth overall pick. You have three top 10 picks that you don't really know how to use. He will figure out how to use Bijan because he's a running back. He will not figure out how to use Drake London or how to use Kyle Pitts in a way that imposes the will of the Falcons and the other team. He could only do that through the running game. He's limited. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's half an offensive coach. He doesn't know half the game half of how to play offense and it's the most important half right he's going to win 10 games and he sucks yes I agree with you on that and it just frustrates me so moving right along to players that are being wasted with immense talent let's talk about Brandon Staley and the Chargers because 
Justin Herbert, by all measures, whether it's statistical, whether it's by the eye test, is great. Got a lot of talent. And you could argue that he's had trouble winning some of the big games, and that's fine, right? You always heap the praises and the criticism on the quarterback. But Dave, I want to read a stat to you that is from Chris Rim on Twitter, okay? He is a Chargers beat writer, I believe. So this is against the Vikings this past weekend, which, by the way, on the money line was even. So that just tells you how both these teams came into this game. (laughs) Justin Herbert was blitzed 81% of the time during this game. His stats against the blitz in this game, 32 of 38, 301 yards and three touchdowns, and is the best stat since it was tracked in 2006. And it is also like the most a quarterback has been blitzed since Colin Kaepernick way back in the day. And by the way, the Chargers scored, what, 28 points and barely squeaked out a win. And this is not the first time this has happened this season. Herbert has been doing this all season long, and the Chargers really should be 0-3 if not for playing another team that chargered harder than they did. And Brandon Staley now is in, what, his third season, I think? Third or fourth. Third or fourth. And I feel like the body of work now is not in his favor. What do you think? It's his third season because Anthony Lynn was the coach for the first season of uh, political football. And we're in year four. Oh, yes. Mr. Goal Line Fade. Oh, yes. thank you. Yes, thank you. Where's he hanging around, by the way? Uh, he was the offensive coordinator for the Lions. They got immediately fired. <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yes. Uh, and now I, I have no idea where he is. But thanks to Coach Prime, he could probably go coach college and be okay. Yes. Because speaking of people that I would sign up to play for in a heartbeat is Anthony Lynn. Okay. All right. Maybe not in the NFL, but, you know. College, for sure. Yeah, if he was the head coach at, I don't know, Texas Tech, I, I'd go play for him. I don't think Brandon Staley is wasting Justin Herbert or the Chargers are even playing that bad this year. They could also be 3-0. and Justin Herbert is also the only quarterback in the NFL to not commit a turnover so far this season. I think that the Chargers, like, the loss when they blew that 27-point halftime lead, lead at home in the playoffs to Jacksonville last year, that clouds everything in the way things are being seen this year. I don't think it's that bad for the Chargers. Could get worse, and Brandon Staley should be on the hot seat right now because of the results that he's had. But unlike Arthur Smith, I don't see a terrible process with the Chargers here. I see much worse luck, especially in close games, than with somebody like Arthur Smith, where it's like, if you fall behind, you're going to get trucked. But at some point, the results have to come with it, though, right, in the NFL. like. Yes. He has to start winning games. And they took a step last year going to the playoffs. So you can give them credit for that. And the loss, look, these things happen, okay? I mean, the Falcons blew a lead to the Patriots. The Vikings somehow miraculously beat the Colts last year. Remember all of this? These things are going to happen every now and again. But this is not the way that they thought they'd be starting their season. And when I say he's wasting Herbert, like I'm looking at him putting up these numbers and seeing the team not be able to win some of these games. And yes, luck is going to have something to do with it. But He's the guy who's going to take the fall because they're not going to get rid of Herbert. Herbert's balling out. Yeah, and they just paid him. No, if they fired Brandon Staley tomorrow, I'd be like, yeah, 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 sure. I think he'd also be a little hard done by if if that happened. I think that he's been, he, he, he hasn't been perfect. He might even be good, but he's also been unlucky on top of it. So it makes it hard to parse out just how bad he is. It's like the opposite of Arthur Smith, who is clearly terrible and going to win 12 games. Brandon Stanley might be a good coach and could lose nine games this year and get fired. Didn't you call Arthur Smith a good coach in your preseason reviews of the Falcons? So I think that Arthur Smith is a good coach at what it is that he does. Also, coming into the season, I thought, well, now he's had a couple years in the system with this team. 
with Drake London. Drake London's going to his second year. Kyle Pitts into his third year. He's going to make these adjustments. He hasn't made the adjustments. So I could retract some of what I said because what I prognosticated did not come to pass. And Arthur Smith is a great coach when he gets to coach the type of game he wants to coach. But if it's anything different, he goes to shit. The team gets destroyed. That's like somebody who was at January 6th now signing up to play for Coach Prime, Dave. I mean, this is just not going to happen. People are not going to change who they are. Let's just be honest with you about that. <laughs> People who are, again, wasting what could be talent, but you could go either either way on this. I'm going to say this name, and I'm pretty sure that many people have no clue this is, but I believe it's Matt Eberflus, who is the head coach of your, somebody's, Chicago Bears. Not mine. No. The Chicago Bears, easily the worst team in the league this year, and they've looked just laughably horrible doing so. And Justin Fields, obviously, his comments last week, say what you want about whether he should or shouldn't have said it. He said it. It is what it is. But I think that we can all agree that the Chicago Bears are a mess for many different reasons, including the fact that they can't get a lock to keep all of their stuff safe. And so Matt Eberflus is looking at this. Justin Fields is, his potential is being wasted. That's why I said his potential, because I think you and I both agree that there is still a ceiling with him, but he looks lost in many ways out there. He seems to be throwing gasoline on fires when he should be trying to put them out. And I don't know if the coaching staff, as it is currently situated, is going to be able to do this. And it's just amazing to me that they're not calling a better scheme for the skill set that he has. And that's a coaching thing, 100%. Going into, this is Eberflus's second season at Chicago. And so going into last year on political football, our co-host Scott made a great point where he said, why do you hire a defensive coordinator to come in and coach this young quarterback who obviously thinks like an offensive style, style coach to develop? And I think that we're seeing that come to pass here. So it's possible Justin Fields is horrible. There's a chance. But Justin Fields has been an elite football player his entire life, right? All the way from like seventh grade up until the NFL draft, it was always Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, 1A, 1B. Gatorade Player of the Year voting all the way up through, through college where Justin Fields beat Alabama and Clemson in the playoffs when he was at Ohio State. Ohio State was not soft when he was there. I just, in college, or I should say at Ohio State, because he transferred from Georgia, Justin Fields completed 63% of his passes through 63 touchdowns to nine interceptions in two years. He knows how to play football at that level for sure. Right. And, and he can pass the, like, it's the same system C.J. Stroud played in. What is going on here? Justin Fields is a downfield vertical passing quarterback who is an insanely talented rushing threat. They're not calling designed runs for him, and they're not calling downfield passes for him. That changed in week three. It was obscured by Taylor Swift, but they did change how they were playing against Kansas City. DJ Moore dropped what should have been a bomb touchdown. Chase Claypool dropped a tougher catch, but one that he should, one that he should make. And they think they called like five design runs for Fields and then pulled off once it was clear they were going to get destroyed. I think Justin Fields is right to call out his coach in the media. I think the coaches have been using him horribly wrong. Even if he's not that good, he's not Zach Wilson. He should not be producing Zach Wilson-style numbers and results as a quarterback. Yeah, and I think that's the problem is that's what he is producing. And some of that is going to fall on him in some ways, right? It's how it works. I mean, he is responsible for what he is responsible for in terms of his growth, but obviously he can be limited. And I've said this all the time that, the situation matters. The coaching staff matters. If Sam Darnold had been drafted to another team that didn't have Adam Gase as its quarterback, would it have been a different outcome? Because coming in, right, he seemed to have some of the tools that you need. And that development matters. 
I mean, some guys it doesn't. Like, nobody knew Tom Brady was going to be Tom Brady. I don't think any coach could have just developed that. It just was who he was. But there are some guys that need it. I mean, Josh Allen, extremely raw when he came into the league. And now he's he's a little bit nerve-wracking in some of the decisions that he makes, but I think he has taken vast steps in being an NFL quarterback. And that's what you expect to see out of Justin Fields. And you ask, how much is it the coach? How much is it the player? And it's got to be somewhere in between. And I don't have an issue necessarily with him calling out his management or anything like that or his, his coaching staff. And I think that going back to it, it was taken far too out of context. It wasn't like he just threw gasoline and said, F these people, this is the problem. He answered in a way that was very much like, I don't know, it could be coaching, it could be this, it could be that. And it's a combination of a lot of things, but you just hate to see that kind of talent wasted. And the Bears, yeah, the Bears, that's all I had to say. Yeah, Justin Fields might suck. In fact, he probably isn't good. But if he is good, we would never find out with how the coaches are using him. Correct. And that's the, that's the real crux of the problem. Yes. And speaking of quarterbacks who we know unequivocally suck, Zach Wilson. Now, I will say this. I will cop to this, that when Aaron Rodgers first got hurt and Brad asked me, who should, who, who should they go get? I said, well, I think they first need to see if Zach Wilson has learned anything from Aaron Rodgers. Like, see if he still sucks. I think we got that. He still sucks. And now you can ask the question of what do we do from here? But the narrative now, it seems like that locker room is just in disarray to the point that Aaron Rodgers being the dad of all of this saying people need to grow up in that locker room from his rehab out in California. And Robert Sala is in the middle of all of this and being people seem to see him as an apologist for Zach Wilson and all that stuff. And I don't know how to feel about Robert Sala as a head coach because it's been such a weird tenure there with terrible quarterback play. All this hope with Aaron Rodgers, four snaps. That's all that they got out of it. And now they're back to exactly where they were last year. And Zach Wilson, for one reason or another, doesn't have it as an NFL quarterback, is not going to find it. And there's not a head coach in the world that's going to make him find it. I just don't don't know what to do about Salah because I don't know how much of this is him versus Zach Wilson just sucks. Robert Salah, or as we call him on a political football, Mac Salad, because that's what Cleve referred to him as one time trying to find his name. So weird. Yeah. Robert Sala, he has to come out publicly backing Zach Wilson, so long as Zach Wilson is his quarterback. Like, he can't he can't say anything else. Like, you know Zach Wilson sucks. I know Zach Wilson sucks. Robert Sala knows Zach Wilson sucks. But he can't come <laughs> out and say anything different, right, until he has, he has another option to go to. And right now he doesn't have another option, so he's got to keep coming out and, and being behind him. I don't think it actually... Robert Sala does not believe what he's saying. He's just saying what needs to be said. And the only really option that he has to say, given the situation, this, this entire situation with Aaron Rodgers getting hurt, though, demonstrates to me, people in general have a hard time understanding when Aaron Rodgers tore his Achilles, their season ended. 100%. The Jets season was over. As soon as he tore his Achilles, it doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter how they go. If they sign Carson Wentz or Matt Ryan or Phillip Rivers or Drew Brees or Colin Kaepernick or the man in the moon, their season is over. They're not winning a Super Bowl. They're going to get trucked by Miami if they have to play them. Right. They're not. They could potentially make the playoffs, but they're not going to make any noise. The season ended when Rodgers got hurt. People were mad because Zach Wilson is the backup for Aaron Rodgers. Well, what if Aaron Rodgers gets hurt? It doesn't matter because Aaron Rodgers gets hurt. The season is over. Zach Wilson sitting behind Aaron Rodgers is your highest upside bet for the future that costs you the least. If he sits behind Aaron Rodgers for two years, learns, develops, and gets better, 
and become serviceable, you just got yourself your next quarterback basically for free because you already paid for him. Correct. So keeping Zach Wilson to sit behind Aaron Rodgers was the correct decision. And if Aaron Rodgers got hurt for the season, you're done. But the Jets cannot come out and say, the season is over. We know the season is over. It's on to 2024. The next games are meaningless. They can't say that to their fans. They can't say it to their players. But they know it. And we all know it. And their fans definitely know it. Right. So I don't think that we should be judging Robert Sala in any way based on this year. Really nobody except for Zach Wilson. If Sauce Gardner gives up 57 touchdowns this year, the season's over and he knows it. He's not. He might not give maximum effort. He might not try his hardest because he knows the season is over. If Brees Hall takes a longer time coming back to play now from his injury, that's fine because the season is over. And so judging Robert Sala or anybody else based on this season doesn't make any sense. The season ended four offensive plays into their year. Yeah, the season is over. Like as soon as he hit the turf, I was like, they're done because right. that's all of their hope. But what were they supposed to do in terms of a backup quarterback? Were they supposed to get another super old backup quarterback to have behind Aaron Rodgers? Like, would that have really helped them in the long run? No, but they could have gotten Gardner Minshew. That's true. But you're not, you're never going to turn to Gardner Minshew as your starter once Rodgers leaves. No. And so since you have Zach Wilson already, and he has a much higher ceiling than Gardner Minshew, he's never going to find it because he sucks, but he has a much higher ceiling than Gardner Minshew, that was the right thing to do. In hindsight, having Gardner Minshew would be great. Gardner Minshew could lead this team to 11 wins. They still wouldn't win the Super Bowl, but they could be a factor in something. But that's not the point, because the point isn't to be a factor in 2023. The point's to win a Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers. Correct. And now they can't do that. The season's over. The season is over, and I feel bad for Jets fans. I actually, I legitimately felt bad for Jets fans. I won't lie to you. I got caught up in the hype a little bit. Like, that night, Aaron Rodgers comes out. It just seems like it's a great night. It's like, yeah. for once, this fan base has something to look forward to. Our boy Cleve has something to look forward to, and this is how it happens. At least right now for you as a Lions fan, the Lions may not be players when it comes to the Super Bowl, right? That may not happen, but... They're exciting. They're fun. Because you told me once that they can't be bad and be uninteresting at the same time. And that's what the Patriots are right now. Bad and increasingly uninteresting. Actually, both of my teams, the Hokies, also bad and uninteresting. And the Lions are interesting. Man Campbell is interesting. The way that they're playing offense is interesting. And the Jets were going to be interesting. And to have it end quite that way, the SAG strike could have ended. They wrote a script and nobody would have wrote that. Like nobody would have wrote that. And now they're staring at just, oh my God, this is over. Like when they showed Robert Saul on the sideline, that's what he was saying to himself. Oh my God, our season is over and I'm four snaps into this thing and I can't leave. He has to stay on the sidelines for the whole season. And now he's going to watch Zach Wilson. But the thing about Zach Wilson is he spent an entire off season, an entire off season with Aaron Rodgers and he learned nothing. Or or he could have learned a lot and he just can't execute it because he sucks. But either way, you're with this guy. Right. I know quite a bit about how to play quarterback in the NFL. It's going to go horribly if you try to let me do it. But Zach Wilson has the body. He has the skills. He should be able to play quarterback in this league serviceably. Serviceably. At at worst, he should be Jameis Winston, where it's like 30 touchdowns, 30 picks. That would be better than what he's doing now. I don't think he has the skills. And I don't think, I think that, even in his own wildest dreams where he hits whatever ceiling he now has, he's not as good as Jameis Winston. 
Oh man, that's that's saying. I mean, Jameis Winston actually has an exciting skill set to him. It's just you hold your breath every time he throws a pass because my goodness, you have no idea who it's going to go to. Yes. But in this case, you don't even know what's going to happen every time Zach Wilson drops back there. It's pretty, pretty bad. Well, Dave, we're bumping up toward the end here. And even though coach isn't here, we like to do something a little bit personal. So I want to give you a little bit of insight into the show here. Iceman's stat of the week. Every week, Coach and I bring a personal flair to the show. Normally, he would do a pick of the week. We will save that for Friday's college kickoff eve, but I'm going to grace Dave with a lovely stat of the week. Dave, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, so you know who Joe Burrow is, I assume? I've heard of him, yes. So this stat is in no way meant to disparage Joe Burrow at all. I think Joe Burrow is wonderful. He is an excellent quarterback. I am merely giving you this stat because of the other people that are on this list. The names are absolutely hilarious. So Joe Burrow, and this is according to ESPN Stats and Info, Joe Burrow is now averaging 4.7 yards per attempt this season. Not very good. Only two quarterbacks in the last 20 seasons have started each of the first three games of the season while averaging fewer yards per attempt. And Dave, those quarterbacks and the years that go with them are as follows. 2008, Derek Anderson with the Cleveland Browns, 4.4 yards. 2005, J.P. Lossman with the Buffalo Bills, 4.5. 2023, Joe Burrow, 4.7. And this is the best one because of the year. 2011, Kerry Collins with the Indianapolis Colts, 4.9 yards per carry. That's just, uh, the the names that are uh, with Joe Burrow are amazing because Joe Burrow is so much better than every single one of those guys. So that's why I said it's not an indictment on Joe Burrow whatsoever, but holy shit, that is funny. Kerry Collins, speak of people who don't like Deion Sanders. 2011. 2011. I didn't realize Kerry Collins was still playing in the league in 2011. I know. I, I remember watching Kerry Collins at Penn State. No lie. I think I was in like third grade. Yeah, he's been around forever. So <laughs> it makes, to be fair, in 2011, Kerry Collins having less than five yards per attempt makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, he was like 55. Your season's over if you're starting Kerry Collins as a Colts fan at that point. That was the year actually that Peyton was hurt, right, with his neck yep. injury. And the Colts were really, really bad and they sucked for luck. And then, boy, did they get rid of Andrew Luck in the most ceremonious way. So, Dave, before we get uh, into the end here, I want to give you another opportunity to let the listeners and watchers know about political football. Yeah, so on political football, you know, I sort of mentioned towards the start of the start of the show, but we talk most we do talk mostly about football this time of year. We do NFL weekly review shows. We go game by game through pretty much every game, get a bit more in depth into what happened, stats, things that we notice prognostications about how the teams are going to do going forward, players we like and don't like, that sort of thing. We will also discuss political things, especially with the intersect with sports or with football. And so nothing is really off the table there. And sometimes the tangents can take us that way as well. So if you're looking for a show that's a bit more in-depth into what each team is doing, then you'll find on like a get up on ESPN, that sort of thing, which is a show I like, but you know, they're just more surface level sort of stuff. We get deeper into it and we will discuss political topics, especially as they come up concerning football um, as well. Yeah, we are right here at Iceman and Coach Get Up and you are like NFL Live, basically. You guys are going way more (laughs) into the weeds than we are, but 
If you want to find that show, the links will be in the show notes in both the podcast world and in the YouTube world. So make sure you go and support them. It's a live stream on YouTube as well. And so if you subscribe to the channel, hit the notification button, you'll get a notification when we're going live. So you can join us in the chat. It's always fun in the chat. We answer pretty much any question that we get as long as it's reasonable. Uh, it's a fun time. So yeah, come come find us. We're on every Tuesday night. It's a really good time. Yes, and one time for all you sexual deviants out there, the sex bots did show up. So please, if you want to get in the chat for that, make sure that you do that. Don't forget this Friday and every Friday during the college football season, college kickoff eve with me and coach. It's a fun time. It's live. You know, I don't do lives very, very often, but we have a good time. I think you showed up to the last one and we have a little bit of fun on Friday nights because at age 40, what the hell else am I going to do with my life <laughs> on a Friday night? If you want to find Iceman and Coach on social media, TikTok at INC Sports is the handle to do that on Twitter at Iceman and Coach. You can also find political football on Twitter. Do not forget that will be in the show notes at the bottom. Facebook, INC Sports is what you'd search for. On Twitch now, INC Sports is the channel that we live stream our college kickoff eve. If you are watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Apple, Spotify, do not forget to hit subscribe, follow, rate, review, all that stuff. Maddie Ice Media Network, MaddieIceMedia.com is back up and running, and it's been revamped a little bit. So if you want to find the other podcasts that we have, including Fire Footwear and The Manual, go check that out. Dave, it has been absolutely fun having you on here. I hope that you enjoyed yourself. So thank you, my man. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? Uh, my only parting thoughts for the listeners are this. Next year, the college football playoff goes to a 12-team model, and Colorado will be in it. All right, you heard that here first. I hope this finds everybody well. I hope this finds everybody safe. And as always, from the Iceman, from Coach, and from Dave, this is Iceman and Coach. Opinions and viewpoints expressed on INC Sports are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty S Media Network. INC Sports is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.